Uh, good morning, my name is Benson Meadows and I'm a covenant partner here at FPC and also a member of the launch program here. Um, this morning, as we continue our Advent series by celebrating how Christmas assures us that God is a promise-keeping God. The promise of God is unstoppable because God is faithful and he will keep his promise. This morning, we see that death cannot destroy God's promise. Sin cannot stop God's promise and time cannot tire God's promise. God is a promise-keeping God because his love in Christ is never-ending. So please join us this morning as we read passages from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, followed by Luke in chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Uh, you can follow in your own Bibles or look up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke of David. And now from Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Thank you, Benson. Good morning, everyone. That was really, uh, that was really weak. Don't take that personally, or take it personally. Let's try it again. Good morning, everyone. That's what I'm talking about. Now we're ready to worship the Lord and study in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, uh, keep them open to 2 Samuel 7. It's where we're going to start. Normally, I would say, if you have your phones, go ahead and look your Bible up on that too. But since everyone is waiting for something other than Christ's second coming until the BCS committee tells us who's in, don't read the Bible on your phones, all right? We're going to stick to the Word. Don't laugh like you weren't looking. Don't do it. Don't, don't judge me. Advent means coming. It means arrival. And for more, since 300s, since the 4th century, uh, Christians have been preparing our hearts for the promise of God to be fulfilled in the celebration of the first coming of Christ. This has looked different in different seasons in North Africa, the Mediterranean area, uh, for literally almost 2,000 years. And it was until recently, you know, about 1,200 years ago, maybe 1,000 years ago, that we started settling on a four-week preparation of our hearts that included different symbols of our faith, like light, uh, greenery, uh, gifts, and candles, just because fire's awesome, basically, uh, to really uh, prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate God's faithfulness. He's a promise-keeping God. So we still want to celebrate Advent in very significant ways. It's why our church has an Advent festival. We invite you all to come back today, three o'clock, 
to help uh, prepare your hearts and decorate your home with symbols of the Advent season so that you can feed on God's faithfulness. Christ has come. And so that you can know and fuel your faith that God will keep his promise and Christ will come again. Uh, I was with a good friend this week, one of our church planning partners, Caleb Sines, and we do. We were talking, having lunch, and we were talking about what I'm sure all of y'all talk about over lunch, uh, why we love the Advent season, right? Or is that just for nerdy pastors who are, okay, all right, I guess it's, that's what it is. Well, he used an illustration that I think is really appropriate. He used the illustration of a car that is sliding on ice or in water, and the temptation when you're driving a vehicle and your, your rear end starts sliding, is to try to turn uh, in, out, away from the slide. But if you do that, you actually lose control. When your car begins to slide, your rear end starts sliding, what you need to do as a driver, you've got to turn into the slide. And when you turn into it, it actually straightens up your vehicle and it keeps you safe. Advent is a season for us to turn into the slide of our hearts to turn into the promises of God so that we can hope again. Here's the truth. All of us have temptations or maybe we're experiencing different slides in our faith. Different things that are struggles, different areas of suffering are leading us to ask questions. God, where are you? How can a good God allow blank? And you, you have these areas of your life, if you're a human, which most of you are, that lives in a fallen world, which all of us do. And last week we celebrated how the reality of God, uh, God's word and the gospel, it really is the only worldview, the only answer to the question of what is the problem. And it gives more than a comprehensive solution. This promise that is fulfilled in Christ the promised seed of Eve. And today we're gonna to see how God's word, the, the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ is really the only way that we can have hope in a world that's filled with heartache and hard times. And if you're like anyone I walk with and you have a uh, sliding faith or the temptation to slide because of different difficulties in the world, uh, areas of discouragement, Disappointment, unmet expectations, despair, depression, and even death. And when we study this uh, surety of hope, it reframes your difficult situation. Only the gospel does this. Here's what it does. Where you are tempted to look at your circumstances and to say, if I could only change this, then everything would be better. The gospel says, look, your limitations are actually the place where hope grows because it forces us into dependency on God and his promises. This is to say this, now, now th hear this. Your suffering, your struggles, the areas of your life where you're longing for a solution, hear this, that's the place hope grows. 
The Bible says it all the way through, but I need you to understand the power of this reframing tool. Look at the way Paul says it in Romans chapter five, verses two to five. He says, through Jesus, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, listen, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your sufferings and struggles, the areas of your life where you're longing for a solution, we rejoice in those as believers. Not longing to change our circumstances, but to lean into God's promise wherever he's put you in his sovereignty so that hope can grow. Hope will not disappoint at all. Now, this morning, we're gonna look at David and the, the unstoppable nature of God's promises, all right? The ground that we really believe God's promises is his grace alone, so we're gonna set that up first. And then second, we're gonna see how the grit of God, his relentless determination to take what you see as limitations, to have that be a doorway for the execution of his faithfulness and his promises, we're gonna to get to that. But first, we've gotta set the, set the ground, all right? So the context of this passage, God's grace is the ground of God's promises. Now, you can see at the beginning of this chapter, uh, when your Bible's open, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan his prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. David was an accomplished king. David had done what no one had been able to do before. He led his army into Jerusalem. He had cleaned out the Jebusites. He had then accomplished victory over the Philistines. He was victorious. And in chapter six of 2 Samuel, we, we see this extravagant scene of David dancing, bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem and all the people are worshiping and celebrating. David was successful. David was victorious. And David had built himself a house of cedar. Now you think of like dwelling places of cedar and you think of a hamster cage, right? Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Well, back in that day, like paneled walls of cedar, you, it just smelled like a plush palace fit for a king. The nicest wood, the nicest house. And David had built himself this house and he said to Nathan the prophet, it's not good for me, just a king to be in a house of cedar. I want to build a house for the Lord. And you hear that and you say, well, David was a nice guy. Isn't it nice of him and all his victories and success to think about a dwelling place for the Lord too? What a guy. But actually what that illustrates, and I need you to hang with me on this because it's gonna expose a tendency that I have and share it with you as it highlights God's grace. Here's how we get to that place. You ready? So in the ancient Near East, it was actually very common. We have uh, textual evidence of this, historical documents from Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, that when an emperor or a king overcame an enemy, they were victorious, they were honored publicly, they built themselves a house, and then they would build a house, a temple for their God, little g, the God of their culture, the God of their country, and this played two key roles. First, it was a way for the king to publicly say, thank you, God, 
Thank you, whatever God of the culture that you, you are at this time. And everybody thanks that God. But secondly, it was a way to set up a little bit of an exchange relationship, something that was transactional, right? It put that God in a box so that the king would have a way to leverage through sacrifice, through ritual, future success. And so what appears to be just kind of the generosity of David is actually a negotiation. It's a transactional relationship. It's, it's a pretty toxic form of moral manipulation of God. And here's where you and I begin to identify with that in two ways. First, we identify it in this way. How many of us are in struggling situations or we've been there before or situations where we don't know the solution and we raise our fist at God and say, how could you do this to me? How could I end up here? I don't think I'm the only one that's been there, but here's what that reveals about my, our hearts when we do that. It reveals that we feel like our performance has somehow obligated God so that when I do good, I should receive good, right? It reveals a transactional relationship where if something's going bad in my life, God has done this to me and I don't deserve it. Here's the other thing that it reveals. It reveals that we relate to God in terms of negotiation, a transactional relationship, okay? Now, we're, we're in a world of negotiation. 2023, I think, will go down as a year with lots of public negotiation. And it highlights just the culture that we live in, right? We have a, the United Auto Workers that negotiated with the major auto, working, uh, auto companies of our, of our culture. We've got writers and actors and guilds, whatever that is, who negotiated with, with different entertainment companies for better contracts, right? We have a global negotiation uh, exchange that has been seemingly uh, more active than normal through negotiations, I think, uh, some hostages were revealed, revealed, released from Iran for billions of dollars. Uh, this past few weeks, there's been high-level negotiations from a surprising place, Qatar, with a terrorist group Hamas in Israel trying to negotiate uh, peace, right? Or at least a period of peace so people could be released. We live in a world of negotiations, whereby we give a little something, we try to find middle ground, and then we get to a place where everybody's happy. And we have a temptation to uh, treat God that way. You don't think you do? How many of you have, have prayed prayers like this? Hey God, if I can just get this job, then I will give you this amount of money. If I can just get my driver's license, then I will drive, I'll go to Bible study, right? If, if I am able to win the lottery or to get in this relationship, then God, then I will blank, negotiate. We, we, we negotiate with God because we live in a culture of negotiation and we morally manipulate God. We put him in a box because we're self-righteous people. And that's exactly what David has done. And it's important that we understand that because we won't appreciate the grit of God's faithfulness to keep his promise until we realize that there is nothing that humans offer to get his promise. And God does something that I would never do. You should all be very glad that I'm not God for lots of reasons, not least of which is this, that if I was God and David was talking to me like, I'm gonna put you in a, in a house of cedar. I, I, I mean, God is super gracious. You read the text, he's like, David, like, I made the cedars. 
I don't, I don't need you to put me in a house of cedar. Thank you. But if Mitchell was God, I would put David in a ball and I would drop him and punt him like an Australian punter, like across the world. And I would find a new king and replace him. That's not what God does. God's astounding in his grace. And we're not gonna read the passage, but I want, I want to highlight the verses because I know you all, and you're gonna spend the afternoon scavenging this text so that you can go deeper. So let me give you a framework as you do that later today. All right, the astounding grace of God is seen in two ways, the experience of grace and the promise of grace to David, all right? First, you're gonna see that when you read it, that it was the Lord's pleasure to choose David as king. He reminds David that he took him out of the fields, out of pastures for himself. And and the Lord promised his presence to never lead him. It's the Lord's presence that's with David. And then the Lord's power cut off enemies through David. And so David has experienced grace. and, And rather than giving condemnation, God gives accommodation. He meets David where he's at so that he could highlight his faithfulness. And then after experience grace, God gives a promise grace in verses 10, 11. He makes clear that David's plans are a great suggestion, but he's not gonna execute. The Lord's plan is to make David's name great. The Lord's protection will ensure the enemies of God will not prevail. And the Lord gives pause, pause from conflict, Pause to experience peace. Pause for David to rest. And so this this context of experienced and promised grace, this is the ground from which we see the grit of the Lord. And I'm telling you, I need you to understand this. This will completely reframe your situations. This is the only, only religion, only worldview where God loves his people and is committed to his people, not based on your performance or my performance, but based on his covenant faithfulness. Every other worldview, every other religion is dependent on your performance. God's grace is the ground. And through that, we see his grit. He will be faithful to his promises. Now look at verse 12. Probably the greatest limitation that you and all have, you and and I all have, is death. Death seems to be the end in life, but, but God tells us it's just the beginning. It's a doorway for him to show his faithfulness. Verse 12 to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down, that is to say, when you die, when you're with your fathers, God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, a student of scripture is gonna hear that word offspring and it's gonna go ding, ding, ding. That's the same word that was used last week in Genesis 3, 15, when God promised that the offspring of Eve, the the child of Eve would squat crush the head of the serpent. This is the same story. It's the same promise that carries from the garden all the way through the stall of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Jesus is that greater offspring and David is being promised in his death, are you hear this? That God would raise up through him the offspring that would have an eternal kingdom. David is completely passive in this 
promise that's made. There's no obligations that David has. It's only God's faithfulness and his promise. And God promises a different kind of house for David's offspring. David wanted to build a physical house. And we'll see it's David's son Solomon who will build the physical house, but God is building a different kind of house, a dynasty, a generational house that will go forever. But for right now, we need to see that that death, the limitations that we have, death is not the end of God's promises. It's the doorway of the beginning of God's promises. Secondly, not only does death not derail God's promise, it's a doorway, but sin does not stop God's promise because God's steadfast love will ensure that it happens. It's stronger than even our sin. Look at uh, the verses down here at 13. Talking about David's offspring, he mingles the the physical with the eternal here. Uh, We won't parse it out, but you'll see how it plays out. He shall build a house for my name, That's Solomon, he'll build a house. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a generational dynasty house. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, that is Solomon's sin, uh, and he will sin so much so that the kingdom divides and his offspring after him, the kings, the human kings will commit sin. God says, I will discipline with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but eternally my steadfast love, his promise will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You see, sin is not strong enough to stop God's promises. Now let's reframe the struggles that you have in your life. The consequences of your sin the difficulties that you're enduring. They cannot stop the steadfast promises of God. To put it another way, God will show his sovereignty to use your shortcomings to execute his faithfulness, period. That's how strong it is. God's grit will show his sovereignty to use our struggles and our sin, what the enemy intends for evil, for the good of his people and the glory of his name. It's why in Psalm 89, 36 and 37, we're told that David's dynasty will endure as long as the sun and the moon. Sin can't stop it. In Revelation eleven fifteen, we see that David's kingdom is exalted to endure forever and ever and ever. Death cannot derail God's promises. Sin cannot stop God's promises. And time cannot exhaust God's promises because there's no statue of limitations on God's faithfulness. David may lay down, but God will rise up his promises. David's offspring may struggle with sin, but God's steadfast love will lift up his promises. God's promises are unstoppable. As, as, uh, his, David's time may end, but they will never tarry in showing God's promises. God is faithful. And God's promises are as unstoppable as natural laws. You know what gravity is, right? Try to stop gravity. Go out and try to reverse gravity. Here's the reality of that natural law. If you try to break the law of gravity, it will break you. 
It's why uh, someone in my family, a distant cousin, his last words were like, hey, Martha, watch this. I was okay, sorry. And he jumps, splat, it's it. No, that's not true. It's just a joke. But you know, it illustrates the point. You can't stop gravity and God's natural law. You can't stop God's promises. You can't stop natural disasters. You can't stop earthquakes. You can't stop hurricanes. You can't stop forest fires. But somehow in God's sovereignty... He's able to bring new life, new growth through those. We can't stop death. Now, don't hear this wrong. You can Botox, but you're still going to end up in a box. You know what I mean? (laughs) You are. You can't stop it. It might look different, but it's coming. Yeah, I was going to say, we put that on the screen. I was like, I hope that quote's not up there. God guarantees his promises. And this is what reframes all of our situations. You say, Mitchell, I appreciate that. Can you please help me see how God uses death as a doorway? How he's sovereign over our sin and uses it to show us steadfast love. Can you help me see it more clearly? I'm glad you asked. Merry Christmas. Let's look at Luke 1. This is exactly how God describes it. The angel said to Mary, don't be afraid. You found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. Listen, and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, this is why Paul says in Romans 1, when he begins his most, what, we, what has become the most famous epistle that he wrote, letter, he begins by describing the gospel of God in the ancient roots that Jesus came physically through the line of David. And then he was declared, you can read it, Romans 1, 2 to 5. He was declared to be the son of God when he resurrected from the grave. Why? Because death is a doorway for God to accomplish his promises. This is why Paul describes in in Galatians chapter four, when it comes to time, he says the fullness of time, when it had came, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus in his work is described by Paul as saying that he who knew no sin, he was perfect. He became sin. He took our sin so that our sin and our struggle is a place to show his steadfast love. You see, all of God's work through Christ is described in this way. God's promise that's fulfilled in Christ is not derailed by death. It's not stopped by our sin. And time can exhaust it. Now, I had someone say to me this week, Mitchell, you've really dropped application from your sermons. All right, I haven't applied it enough. So we're going to end with some application. Are you ready? All right, real quick. I want you to be able to take this stuff home with you. Question. Is your hope derailed by discouragement, depression, distress, even death in this life? In the gospel, we know suffering and struggles are not the end of the story. God is working all things for his glory. Where is your hope? Do you really believe the solution to your struggles is a change of circumstances or is it an opportunity for you to rejoice in your sufferings so hope can grow? Second, do you know God's grace so much so that you resist the temptation of moral manipulation and futile negotiation with God? 
moving back from a transactional relationship so that you can fully trust his steadfast love? That one gets me every time. Transaction. It just seems easier. It's less personal. We don't want to believe that God fully sees us and he fully loves us. That's a vulnerable place. Finally, I want to ask you this. Will you allow the grit of God to reframe your reality, hoping with all of your heart in God's goodness and God's faithfulness to keep his promise? This is what this table's about. This is what this ceremony is about. God has kept his promises in Christ. God will keep his promises in Christ. Jesus has come. Jesus will come. You see how that bookends our worship service? It makes it so when we see Christ's death, when we have faith in Christ, we can feast on life. When we see that Christ took our sin, we come to this table to feast on forgiveness. When we know that historically Jesus died on the cross in time and in history, we know that by faith in this time, right now, we can come feast on his sovereign grace because God has grit, determination to reveal his faithfulness and his steadfast love for you shown in accomplishing that which he has promised and will promise so that you can find glory that grows in the form of hope from whatever struggle you've got, whatever circumstance you're in, God's sovereign plan will go forward. You can trust God in his promises because suffering in Christ is not the end of the story. It's not. And that's why we come to this table. Because Jesus entered into suffering. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his friends left him, when religious and government leaders turned on him, that night, historically, Jesus was betrayed. He had dinner with his disciples, the Last Supper. And after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant. This cup's a new covenant of my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he will come again because God is faithful to his promises. And when he comes, he will make all sad things become untrue. He will restore and renew his church and his world. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for being faithful to your promise. That at Christmas, we celebrate the hope that we have knowing that you have come and the hope that we have knowing that you will come again. We thank you, Lord, that your promise is ancient and that while you give us a true solution of the true the issue, freedom to identify the sin struggle of our lives and of our world, the real problem, you give us a true solution in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your grace that saves us and your grit that pushes your promise forward in spite of things that are pretty big obstacles like death and our own sin. We praise you for that. And Lord, 
we thank you that we can feast on that reality at this table, this sacrament. Lord, we know that this isn't First Presbyterian's table. This is a table for all of your disciples. And we, we know, Lord, that you are not physically present at this table. You are locally present at the right hand of the Father, but you are spiritually present here. And so I ask, Lord, that in our despair and in our discouragement, we will come and, and feast on your peace. I pray, Lord, that in our struggles and in our sin, we'll come feast on your serenity and your righteousness. Lord, we thank you for this sacrament and ask that your grace would nourish us. I pray, Lord, for those that are in this space this morning, longing to hope, would you ambush them with your love, your faithfulness and person of Jesus? And Lord, I pray that all of us would be secure in your steadfast love. Secure enough as your children to pray the way you taught us to pray, saying together the Lord's Prayer.